Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean Podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. My guest today is Simon Zadek, the Executive Director of Nature Finance. He is a strategic, a creative, a very big thinker around how to align finance with global nature positive goals. Amongst the many, many things he's done, he's created the Task Force on Nature Finance. And I am so excited to speak to him today about this moment in time and how attitudes in finance, industry, and government are changing when it comes to nature. Simon, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. My pleasure. Very good to be here. As I told you right before we started taping, I've just done such a deep dive on all of your papers. And I'm so thrilled to get to talk to you because we go around on this podcast hitting all the points that promote nature positive solutions, science, technology, storytelling. And you really are one of the biggest thinkers when it comes to finance. So just to kick us off, can you tell us a bit more about your mission? Absolutely. So, yeah, there's probably a 20 year track record of trying to connect the sustainability and finance agenda in a serious way. And at some point, it stopped being just about how do we get more money flowing? And it started being about how does the financial system work? And how do we make sure that the rules governing the way those markets work, you know, take sustainability into account? And then climate and particularly carbon sort of took over in a way and became sort of the currency through which green financial system reform was discussed. It went to the G20 under the Chinese presidency and then continued through the German and Argentinian presidencies. There were several international commissions of inquiry, one at the UN that I ran. There was another whole focused on we had digitalization of finance, so fintech and you know AI and big data and all that stuff changes the finance and sustainability equation. And then sometime around 2018-19, the nature agenda began, shall I say, sort of drifting into that space. And you could argue for decades there's been a conservation finance agenda and many actors involved in it, but in the main. It's been about how to direct public money and how to raise philanthropic dollars to spend on good things, you know, fixing wetlands and so on and so forth. And really, around 2019, we began to see this extraordinary pivot as many of the lessons from the broader sustainable finance agenda, the climate finance agenda, began to infect the way we thought about how to bring nature into the financial equation as well. And it's been a real ride over the last four years, going from you know more or less a tabula rasa, just a blank sheet, to a full-fledged approach to building nature into the way central banks think about financial stability and monetary policy, the emergence of standards to push financial institutions to consider nature-related risk in a more systematic way, the building of nature into sovereign debt markets, $100 trillion worth of financial markets. So we've seen 
some quite extraordinary changes beginning to emerge really over the last 36 to 48 months. If we want to just set the scene, let's put some numbers to this. True Cost, uh, an organization, estimated that unpriced national capital costs were $7.3 trillion because we are not pricing nature into the economy. Am I right with those numbers? You're right. Against actually 2010 GDP. So, of course, the number would be a lot higher now. Right. Got it. So unpack that for us. What does that mean? So it means... You know, when you eat your bread and butter, if you do eat bread and butter, you know, the grain will have come from somewhere, the butter will have come from a cow or something resembling a cow. The impacts of growing that grain, of shipping that grain, of trading that grain, of, you know, incubating the milk and everything that goes along with the cow, all of those things depend on the bounty of biodiversity and are in the main unpaid for costs of that bread and butter that you're eating. But it's not just bread and butter. Think about, you know, moving upscale into furniture and many of the other things that are in anybody's room that may be listening to this. Where does biodiversity fit into the products and services and homes and books and sofas and food and the many different things that surround us on a 24-7 basis. And many of those things are benefiting from what we might call ecosystem services. So things that we're taking from nature that have historically either been unpaid for completely or underpriced in those products and services. And so that 7.3 trillion is sort of, it doesn't really matter whether the number is six or nine or 12, It's a huge proportion of GDP, of global income, is driven by the value of biodiversity that is not being counted. Simon, do you think that this is because of ignorance or greed or both? Today, I would imagine that there was a certain time where you could say it was because of ignorance. But in today's world, because so much profit is made by people turning a blind eye to the extraction of nature, right? It is a true tragedy of the commons. I think that our global economy, and by implication, us as individuals, is addicted to underpriced nature. Hmm. Yeah. You know, we have an $8 trillion a year food system. So think of global economy, $100 trillion. So 8% of everything that is valued monetarily is our food system, not just production, but all the trading and services associated with it. The World Bank estimates that the unpaid for effects of the food system, so those so-called externalities, are valued at $12 trillion a year. So more than the entire financial value of our global food system. So to put that in a different way, if our food system existed in a full cost economy where everybody had to pay for everything correctly and it was one company, then it would be bankrupt. And of course, the downside is not just that there may be companies that are profiting from extracting underpriced 
so unpaid for nature. But of course, we are as well. Nature Finance, the organization I run, you know, ran some quantitative simulations. What would happen if the financial sector started inputting a higher price for nature into their investments in food, for example, you know, food assets in many shapes and forms around the world? And of course, not surprisingly, the simulations suggested you, know, you would get higher unemployment as many marginal production systems, i.e. that were living on fragile nature, were priced out. And similarly, the simulations suggested if you count all of nature, ignoring any technology change, which we can come back to, then of course, the cost of nutrition goes up, yeah, which has all sorts of impacts, particularly on poorer communities. So we are addicts of underpriced nature. It's endemic in our global economy. Yes, of course, now there are profit takers and winners and losers. And the transition to a price nature that ensures that it is more effectively conserved and invested in will be an extremely painful one, even putting the climate agenda to one side. On the other hand, the price of not pricing nature has also enormous negative effects. They're just not quite as immediate. Absolutely. And actually, you know, there are a whole bunch that are immediate. We already know, you know, if we're, I don't know, living in Argentina, which survives largely from food exports, that the quality of the soil has significantly degraded, you know, reducing productivity, making it more dependent on fossil fuel and other chemical inputs, and making it more and more difficult for Argentina to meet its export objectives that generates income and livelihoods. And that goes all the way down to the Ghanaian cocoa producer, where the soil has eroded significantly again. And that affects their cocoa production, the quality, the volume, the price they get for it, and their ability to sustain livelihoods across that all-important cocoa crop in Ghana. But closer to home, perhaps, California, I don't have to tell you, you know, water shortages, pollination problems, you name it. Yep. Those are the effects on what is the world's whatever, fourth, fifth, sixth largest economy, California, whatever the number is. You know, that as those nature services begin to be simply unavailable, the quality of life, the productivity of California, notwithstanding its technology prowess, you know, will suffer. You're focused on solutions, though. So we know the problems. But how have you seen that global finance markets have been able to change in small ways so far and some big and hopefully much bigger so that we're aligning incentives correctly? So in January 2020, the decision was made to create an organization called the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. Rolls off the tongue, TNFD. What's it all about? It's about persuading or requiring the corporate community and the broader financial community to measure their dependency on nature, the risks associated with that dependency, and to factor that into in the case of financial institutions, their investment decisions. Does that make them care about nature? No. I guess that's not immediately our objective. Does it 
make them value nature, yes, or at least in financial terms, that's certainly the objective. Or take a different part of the system. Ecuador you know, has just issued a $2.1 billion sovereign bond, so for the government, and in return for adopting commitments to spend money on specific aspects of Galapagos protection, they have asked from the market a step down, a reduction in the cost of capital. So if they achieve those goals, which are defined quantitatively and are all about protecting the Galapagos, there will be a step down reduction in the cost of servicing their debt. Now, today, we have 60 developing countries in fairly extreme debt distress, where very significant parts of their public expenditure, so this money raised through taxes, is being spent on servicing international debt, you know, leading to obviously all kinds, not only of nature problems, but of social problems domestically for their citizens. So if we can begin to produce a generation of so-called sustainability-linked sovereign financing instruments, where the cost of capital is linked to promises and delivery of nature and climate outcomes, we benefit nature and climate, and we reduce the cost of capital to those developing countries, particularly the ones that are in distress today. So across what are complex and heterogeneous financial markets, there are all sorts of different things going on. Some of them are innovations in instruments like these debt instruments. Some of them are innovations in standards and metrics like this TNFD business that I was talking about. And central banks, regulators, you know, those anonymous folks that one never really gets to see or understand most of the time. For the first time, really, they're beginning to think about where does biodiversity fit into our story in the way we set interest rates, the way we drive financial regulation of banks, the way we set so-called capital reserve requirements? Where does biodiversity fit into our job, the folks that are setting the rules for financial and capital markets globally? How are people pricing nature in those cases? Because if you have sort of a vague understanding that this is important, nature provides ecosystem services, so that if I am protecting nature, costs go down in a myriad of other places. Is this a sense of it will work and so it's important, or are people doing a very good job pricing it? Very good question. So I think from the nature community, one comes at that question thinking, that there must be a universal way to price nature. There must be a value of a tree. You know, however complex it is to measure it, however disputed it might be, eventually certain types of trees will be valued X. Yeah, but of course, we all know from the way we buy toothpaste that that's not how markets work. It depends on who's delivering the product. I'll give you an example in a second. It depends on who's demanding. For example, if I'm a big company and I want to buy carbon credits because I'm putting out too many emissions compared to what I promised I'd put out, so I'm trying to offset those emissions, I will head off to Oaxaca in Mexico and make a deal with an indigenous community or a local farming community or a local authority yeah, that they're going to plant a bunch of trees and 
those trees will absorb carbon and I will pay them, say, 10 bucks a ton for the carbon that additionally has been stored that wouldn't have been stored otherwise. And so, in effect, that gives you a price for nature. Is it the right price? No, because there isn't really a right price in that situation, but it's a price that the market's willing to pay. So that's one way into the story. Now, of course, that leads to all sorts of distortions. What happens if that company is only willing to pay three bucks a ton? Is that fair? And is it fair to nature's steward, whoever they happen to be? And is it enough to ensure that those trees will be tended and looked after and grow effectively? And when there are fires, those fires will be put out? Probably not. And so we're seeing a very difficult dynamic between the beginnings of internalizing nature value into markets, but then the sort of crazy way in which nature markets prices stuff. You know, will it be high? Will it be low? It depends on negotiating skills. If you have a very weak local community that can't negotiate with a global corporation, you end up with a lower price per ton. And so again, that pushes one to begin to set rules of the game so that it isn't just a, a sort of a cowboy moment, if I can use the word slightly derogatively. You know, it isn't just crazy folks going around trying to negotiate whatever deal is available. So no. Integrating nature into markets is not leading to universal valuations, but is leading to the pricing of nature assets, albeit governed largely by supply and demand at this stage. So we're really focused on governance and transparency. You were talking about the carbon markets, and we could have an entire podcast about carbon markets. But I'm wondering from your perspective, who are the biggest players? Who needs to get involved to say this is the way things need to be done so that globally we see a real transformation around the way we look at finance? Is it governments? Is it industry? Does one domino have to go first? Well, let me start with the biggest and most important market when it comes to nature, which is food commodity markets. So it's one thing where the stuff is grown, but what about? how they're traded. So when you take all the basic food crops, yeah, so the wheats and the rices and so on and so forth, it turns out that there are just six companies in the world that dominate something like 70% of global trade. And five of those six companies are private. They're not listed on any stock exchange, so they're remarkably opaque. And the sixth is, in fact, a state-owned enterprise from China. So the world's largest nature markets, food commodity markets that in many ways define, for example, you know, what happens to the price of food in the context, say, of the war in Ukraine, are completely opaque, very untransparent, and certainly the regulators of those markets are nowhere even close to beginning to take and force those companies to take nature and climate into account. So even if I'm a major buyer like a Nestle, if I'm buying through those commodity markets, traceability is almost impossible to really figure out where that grain is or where that coffee is. So, you know, the only way I'm going to be able to do that is if I avoid those markets and buy directly from farmers in Kenya or wherever it happens to be. So that's certainly an example of major change needed 
a few companies in a dominant position, regulators fairly weak, and the need undoubtedly for non-voluntary, so statutory or regulatory approaches to improving the transparency of those markets significantly. And just to give a second example, if I may, so environmental crime, perhaps not the subject that we were most immediately going to jump into, is worth anything up to an estimated $280 billion a year. So that's the third largest source of illicit financial flows in the world. And those criminal activities happen in many different shapes and forms, involve secondary problems such as human trafficking and all sorts of other forms of social and economic disruption, but are major sources of nature destruction. Think of deforestation in the Amazon, but there are many, many other examples you could think of. Now, what we know is that a significant part of those nature crimes are linked to completely legal food production systems. Yeah, so you have a company, it's, I don't know, doing meat or cattle or something of that kind. It's buying cattle on the hoof from farmers who are operating on illegally deforested land in the Amazon. It doesn't mean that that company tore down the Amazon. That happened somewhere else, the criminal activity. But those nature crimes are all intertwined with completely legal businesses and, of course, therefore also legal investment. And so the opportunity to try and get at those nature crimes and to reduce their importance by enforcing legislation way up the value chain in the financial Mm -hmm. community, requiring banks and other financial institutions to be able to demonstrate that there are no nature crimes in their investment value chains would make a big difference. But ironically, the regulator there is not an environmental regulator. The regulator is a financial regulator. You know, it's not the environment minister of Brazil that one's looking at. It may be the SEC that's overseeing a US company, financial institution that's investing in a company in Brazil. So conclusion, nature is not like climate. It's much more heterogeneous. There are many different aspects to it and many different types of regulations and many different types of markets and many different regulators that need to be involved. There's far fewer silver bullets, if you like, than one would think about in the context of, for example, reducing carbon emissions. Are governments requiring this because they see what's happening to their lands and people because of the destruction of nature? Or is it that industry, individuals, communities are waking up to what's happening and forcing change? The boring answer is both, but maybe I can add a couple of sentences that make it less boring. I think that the financial community is waking up to a new category of risk, and it wants to understand that risk. It also can see that public pressure on policymakers and regulators is making those risks and understanding them and managing them effectively, you know, a legal requirement. So that's, if you like, the top-down story. But 70% of biodiversity is managed by indigenous communities and people. This is a very different stewardship model than when you think about other risks or aspects of the sustainability equation. And so there are also many, many initiatives coming from the base, but often 
struggling to really find ways to influence the way global markets work. Yeah, and you see that, for example, in the emergence of biodiversity credit markets, where on the one hand, there's finally the beginnings of a sort of policy high-end market engagement through this global roadmap that was launched at the summit in Paris a few weeks ago, co-chaired by the French and the UK. And that's trying to begin to get rules of the road for how biodiversity credit markets might work in the future, which is very timely and clearly is an attempt to prevent the same sort of Wild West crazy approach that we've seen in voluntary carbon markets. I'll just say one thing is that you all wrote a great paper on this, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes here. Brilliant. And on the other hand, as part of exactly the same process, there will be indigenous leaders you know, trying not just to become beneficiaries, which is the sort of old-style patronizing model, but trying to figure out what would it mean to have a biocredit that was specific to a particular community in the Ecuadorian Amazon? Why do all credits need to be the same? What would it mean for a group of indigenous communities, so a coalition, to set up a biocredit exchange and to run it themselves? Why is it that IPLCs, so-called indigenous people and local communities, have to be at the end of the pipeline and at best be the provider of projects for which they get paid some money? Why can't they be involved in the design and governance of markets? And that seems to us at Nature Finance to be not just an opportunity, but a need to create equitable markets that will work over the long term and that will support nature stewards effectively, rather than purely top-down approaches that too often, as we've seen, become co-opted by fairly narrow commercial interests. Well, it's incredibly exciting to me to think about how technology can allow for transparency and allow for lots of other people to contribute to these markets in ways that that wasn't as easy, I think, in the past. Yes. So maybe just as a sort of closing comment, on the digital side, we've engaged quite extensively with a range of different blockchain platforms, explored different approaches to tokenization, spent a lot of time with some of the creators of the most innovative measures of biodiversity, such as ETH in Zurich, which is like the MIT of Switzerland. And so clearly, technology does have an important role to play in transparency, in measurement, in traceability, and accountability. And whether or not they are deployed in that way, or whether they're principally deployed to improve the efficiency of markets, so price discovery and liquidity, and actually they don't really touch on the issues of equity at all, that depends on who's deploying them with what objectives in mind. So I think we should embrace some of the technological opportunities that are now with us, but we should also recognize that left to their own devices, they don't necessarily deliver more equitable markets with more effective nature-positive outcomes. Agreed. And we could have a whole discussion about governance, but that will be for another time. Simon, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I could keep you on this call for maybe six more hours and still not even get enough out of you. So enjoy the rest of your day and best of luck with everything that you're working on. 
Thank you very much indeed for inviting me onto the show. And I look forward to hearing other podcasts that cover some of those other topics. Bye for now. everyone so much for listening today. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please follow us on Twitter. You can join our new Atlantis Labs conversation on Discord. Or if you have a comment about this particular episode, you can leave it on Good Pods. You can find all those links in our show description. See you next time.